Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, more than 3,000 long-term care residents died during the pandemic here in Ontario. It's a system that all parties agree needs to be fixed. Well, yesterday the Ford government unveiled new legislation. Rod Phillips, the Minister of Long-Term Care, joins us to explain. Well, this past Tuesday, the Prime Minister named former Greenpeace activist Stephen Girbeau as Environment Minister, giving him the job he's always wanted. Is he up to the task? Well, we'll discuss that. And more followed coming from the Chicago Blackhawks sex scandal. Last night, Florida Panthers coach Joel Quenville resigned. And even more news about that today. We'll get into all of that as the Bill Kelly podcast begins right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the program today, new legislation here in Ontario. The Ontario government has introduced legislation that increases accountability for long-term care operators and improves care for residents. Uh, The legislation would double maximum fines for repeat long-term care offenses to a maximum of $1 million for corporations and $400,000 for individuals. Global's Matthew Dingley has some of the details and some of the reaction. The opposition says the Tories need to move away from the for-profit care system. What the government's plan is, is to continue to reward bad actors um, with uh, public dollars uh, in in these for-profit homes through the the very lucrative contracts that they are awarding them. The head of Ontario's long-term care clinicians is much more favorable to the legislation, saying the broad strokes of this bill speak to a focus on quality of life, quality of care, and a palliative philosophy in long-term care. Back outside Orchard Villa, where her father and dozens of other residents died, Kathy Parks says the province is missing the point. To sort of erase the last 18 months is really insulting to the families and to the memories of our loved ones. We have to look back, and there has to be an account for what happens, and then we can look forward together. Matthew Bingley, Global News. Well, to get some reaction to that, we're pleased to welcome the minister in charge uh, of long-term care uh, to give us uh, some of the, the, I guess, the instrument details about what's going on. Uh, He, of course, is uh, Rod Phillips, Minister of Long-Term Care and MPP for Ajax. Uh, Minister, uh, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today and a very busy day for you. Bill, it's been great to be back, and even on a busy day, I'll make time to listen to you and Richard Brennan later on. There's a reason they called him the bad, the bad. He's the, the part, he's he's still the badger minister, as you know, and uh, always great to hear from him as we do every Friday. Let, let's talk about the legislation now. Uh, you've been on the show a couple of times and talked about some of the pieces of this, and it's all come together now in this in this uh, one bill called the uh, the the bill that's supposed to address an awful lot of these concerns and these problems right now. Uh, there's been some criticism about it, as you probably would have expected. And I want to address a couple of those things and get your reaction to them. Uh, one of them is the ongoing debate about private ownership versus uh, public ownership, not-for-profit, in other words, and, and a lot of concern about that. And uh, the, the, the numbers here indicate a story that I know some people are uncomfortable with, that it seems as if a lot of the uh, the problems and some of the severe problems occurred in the for-profit business as opposed to uh, the, the not-for-profit businesses right now. Uh, first of all, your take on that, and, and was is that being reflected in this legislation? No, absolutely. Uh, we've learned a great deal. Uh, I've listened to families and, of course, our long-term care commission, and they made it clear that we needed accountability, we needed more enforcement, uh, we needed to make sure that whoever's operating a home in Ontario uh, does it knowing clearly that there's implications and consequences if if the rules aren't followed. And that's why this week, as you said, there's been a number of announcements. We announced the doubling inspectors, the highest ratio of inspectors to homes in Canada, um, the creation of a group of those inspectors that will have investigations 
operations roles coming from former law enforcement. And of course, you know, doubling of the fines and, and now penalties that include prohibitions from being in the uh, long-term care business if there's a conviction. So that's an important part of, of what we've, uh, what we focused on. Of course, I think the most important part of the legislation is legislating the idea of four hours of care per resident per day. That's what's going to mean 27,000 more staff, uh, in, in the homes. But to this issue of, of who the operations are, you know, today in London, and I know you've got listeners in London, you know, we're open the new Elmwood place that's going to be 50 new beds in addition to the beds that are there on Morgan Avenue. Those are beds that were built by a private operator. I'm actually up here in, in Spitzville in Ottawa today uh, for uh, the groundbreaking on another 250 new beds, new modern beds again with the support of a private operator. So we need help from everyone. We need to make sure everyone has and uh, that's what this legislation does. Interestingly, though, uh, as, as we look at some of the data here, though, Minister, uh, and this is this is some of the government's own data, it indicates that uh, uh, two out of every three uh, families that are applying for, for uh, admittance into one of these are opting for not-for-profit as opposed to that. In other words, 60% of the people that are going into these facilities would rather be in not-for-profit. Uh, would that not indicate that maybe that should be the focus of some of these new beds and these new builds? The last allocation of beds, and as we said, we're 20,000 beds. We've allocated of 30,000 beds. We're doing that, of course, because the last majority of those beds were either municipal or not. You seem to have some problems here, some breaking up. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? It would much better, Minister. Thank you. Okay, I'm not sure where you lost me there, but I just said, you know, we did, we, the majority of the beds that were put forward in the last group of allocations were not for profit and municipal beds. Um, that's, uh, you know, so we're going to work with whoever the best operators are, but we also have a huge waiting list, and that's part of our priority has been to build those 30,000 new beds after the previous government built only 611 in seven years. Uh, the, the power actually to set something down or to appoint a, 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 an overseer, I guess, if there's some egregious things going on here. that, As you know, Minister, that's actually a power that the, the government currently holds. Uh, we saw examples of that in Hamilton some years ago when they basically, uh, when the Board of Education refused to adhere to budget proposals, uh, the province stepped in and simply said, okay, we'll run it. So th- that's there. You've not used it yet, and, and there have been in many people's minds some rather egregious offenses by some of these operators in the last 19 months. Uh, what will change? The fact that you're enshrining it in legislation now, uh, does that mean you're going to be more proactive in, in, in laying charges and, and pursuing the people that are they're the wrongdoers? Listen, the, that power that you talk about around supervision doesn't exist for long-term care. It's one of the changes we've made, very much in the way that we talked about it, is by doing uh, things for we would do in the past for hospitals, for school boards. So that, and you might recall during the pandemic, it was quite unclear exactly who and how a room or a home could be taken over. So that's one of the reasons that we've included this new supervision power so that the government can step in clearly. Uh, there'll be no question and we can put an operator in place in the extraordinary case where we have to suspend a license. That's another example of the kind of accountability that we need to have. How do you foresee that happening, Minister? Would that be after a conviction or it would be uh, if there's somebody who is uh, even being charged with something like this? I mean, the, the immediate care of the uh, the residents would be uh, something that I'm sure that you and, and the ministry would be very much concerned about right now. Would you step in before there's actually a, a trial or a conviction in this uh, just as a, as a proactive measure? 
in the case of a suspension of a license, it absolutely could happen that way. We've also introduced fines of up to $250,000. This is something that the Liberal government put in their last uh, long-term care bill but never proclaimed. So we'll be putting those fines in place. It can be levered immediately. And then, of course, there's the Provincial Offences Act where you could follow through with charges. But this is about being able to move quickly in the extraordinary case where we need to, where we see that the rules aren't being followed. But... We're also introducing proactive inspections, which was a recommendation of the Long-Term Care Commission. Part of the doubling of the inspectors is to make sure that we're able to have inspectors in those homes ahead of time. We obviously want to get ahead of these problems. And I have to say, Bill, the vast majority of people who run these homes and the huge majority of people who work with them are deeply compassionate people who care for the residents. We just have to make sure that where there are exceptions, there are consequences. Some concern about the here and now. A lot of the stuff you're talking about here, Minister, you're, you're talking about it being three, four years out. And we understand the logistics. You can't just bring 7,000 people in here and say, okay, you guys start Monday. I, we, we, I think we get that. But as you know, uh, the average stay in long-term care facilities is about 18 to 24 months. And the people that are there right now are saying, well, what about us? What now? That's going to be great for the people that are going to be in here after us. One of those is retention of, of staff. And I know that's been an ongoing problem. You and I have talked about this many times. Uh, you also announced, by the way, there was going to be an extension and there will be an extension uh, to the temporary wage subsidy uh, for about 160,000 personal support workers. That's going to go on until next March. Why not just make that permanent? Yeah, so the Premier has said that we want to make that permanent. You know, we are going to be in discussions with the federal government who've also talked about uh, wages for PSWs in the in the campaign that was successful for the federal Liberals. So we want to work with them. But, you know, we've, we've made it clear we're, we'll make that permanent. But, but there's so many other items. We, starting next month, $270 million to start to hire 4,000 new staff. And starting next month on this path to the 27,000 new staff. Just this week, I announced $100 million to train 2,000 nurses. That's going to take existing PSWs. And I know you've had conversations about this on your show, about people who are in the health sector or in other areas and want to work their way up to becoming a nurse and becoming a registered practical nurse. That's the kind of program that we need because we need to make sure we have the people. And people want those roles, and that's what's exciting about this. People want to be um, able to help and work in the long-term care sector. We just have to help them get the skills. So there's a lot of moving parts. It took decades for the system to get to where it's gotten to. It's going to take a bit of time to fix it. But I'm really encouraged by the positive response from unions, um, certainly from operators, um, from, from advocates as well. Obviously, we're going to be looking for feedback in terms of how to make it better, but I think if we add the staff and we add the new beds and we make sure the rules are clear and the enforcement's there, we're on the path to fixing long-term care. That's an important part. Let me ask you something. You've talked about feedback, Minister, the last couple of times you've been on the program. Who's going to be at the table as you look at the assessment of this, as this rolls out, and, and, and we look for the shortcomings, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of every piece of legislation? Are you bringing the, the, the main characters into this, the people that are on the front line? Are they going to be represented there? I, I have. So I've created a, a table uh, that's chaired by my deputy minister and by my parliamentary assistant, Effie Triumphalopoulos, but it just includes all the major unions who I've met with and, and we've got consultations from. It does include the operators' representatives as well, the association family representatives, resident representatives, uh, the, uh, you had the uh, palliative care and the long-term care physicians. Um, so making sure those people are at the table, because even the, just the rolling out of the staffing, it's a massive increase, 43% increase in the number of staff and the number of dollars. We have to make sure that happens correctly. So that and all these other pieces, I, I know I've, I thank those folks. They're, they're going to be great, uh, great at giving advice. And, and then, of course, I, I do roundtables and talk to individuals, particularly staff and residents, and get my own feedback. But, uh, but this, this will take 
you know, the fix won't happen overnight, um, but I think we're going in the right direction, and this legislation is an important part of that. Busy day for you, Minister. Appreciate you taking some time. Obviously, many more discussions to come on this as this rolls out, but we, uh, we do thank you for joining us today. Bill, I look forward to it. Take care and have a great weekend. You too. That's uh, Minister of Long-Term Care, uh, Rod Phillips, uh, actually on his way to another opening, I guess, up in the uh, the Ottawa area, the Ottawa Valley area. Uh, lots of concerns about this, and, and I'm glad the Minister had some time to talk to us about this, because we've heard from some of the advocates, and, and frankly, there's been mixed reaction to this. I mean, some people are suggesting, hey, this is a good first start. Uh, a lot of others saying, well, look, at this is a lot more to go on this, and, and I think I think there's a consensus there that the, this is the beginning. This is not going to be the be-all and end-all that's going to solve all of the problems that we've talked about over the last little while. And there are some people that are concerned about what's going to be happening here and now. I mean, there have been a number of reports, as we've talked about, including the military report, the independent report, and the government's own report uh, that talked about some of the shortcomings. And, and this proposed legislation certainly addresses some of that, but I'm not so sure that everybody is comfortable with the manner in which they're doing it. And I know a lot of this boils down to this debate that's been going on for some time now about, you know, public ownership, the not-for-profits versus the for-profit situations. And we talked about this as, as the, the number of deaths and some of the horrific stories we heard about the level of care or poor care uh, that were going in some of those facilities. And that's still there in many instances. And that's why we talked about is it a place that people want to go to? It's great to know that there's going to be money available to train people to get into this industry. Uh, and that's hopefully going to supply the numbers that they've talked about here over the next three to four years. But what about here now? What about the working conditions right now in those facilities? Uh, somebody looks at this right now and says, is that really a place that I want to go? Is that a career that I want to pursue? We talked about that earlier this week on our program with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who's the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. And she says retention of staff is still an ongoing concern. To mandate a certain level of pay for all the workers in the home, to mandate, you know, uh, the majority full-time permanent positions for these workers so they don't have to take jobs, part-time jobs in number different facilities, which we know led to increases in the disease spreading around the facilities. And apparently that's still going on, according to Dr. Stamathopoulos and some of the folks that she's talked to in the industry. And, and the, the short answer to that is you've got to make this an attractive field for people to go into. It's, it's one thing to offer the education and the training for that and to pay for it. A wonderful idea for people who may not have the financial resources to be able to do that. But the concern that I've heard from some of the union members is if, if the conditions that are existing right now continue... Those people are going to go through those courses. They're going to graduate and they're going to go into these facilities. And after a few weeks, maybe, or months, they're going to say, this is not for me. I can't do this. Because there are people right now that are leaving that industry because they can't stand the stress and the workload and they're concerned about working conditions. And, and that's something to hear now. I mean, they talk about the inspectors. How proactive are they going to be and how directive are they going to be? Because there's a, there's a as there isn't just about every other industry right now, there's a, a shortage right now of skilled workers to fill these roles. So there are going to be problems with the delivery of service. You know, if somebody rings the bell and says, I need assistance. Are they going to be there? Is that going to be responded to? There's all kinds of controversies about the level of care. And I know that the uh, the, the hours of care that uh, the minister talked about that are included in this legislation uh, sound a lot better than the current ones, but we're still talking three years from now. And there are other jurisdictions that have done it much more quickly than that. So this is this debate is not over. It's going to continue for the next little while. Uh, we'll have the minister on again, to be sure. And we're going to have some of the other folks that have 
well, chips in the game as it goes uh, to make sure that this industry gets back on its feet and, and delivers the kind of service that we want to see for our, our seniors and the frail and elderly in this province. It's going to be an ongoing discussion and certainly an ongoing debate. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a busy week in Ottawa this past week. Uh, the Prime Minister, of course, announcing his new cabinet and swearing in, and we're going to talk about the reaction to that in a couple of seconds. Uh, he's out of the country right now. Uh, left yesterday on his way over to Europe, eventually uh, to be uh, a part of the uh, the big symposium that's going on, the COP26 symposium in Glasgow, uh, and which, uh, of course, many other world leaders are going to be there. Uh, the United Nations says this is a very, very important conference. Uh, the survival of the world depends on it, they say. Charles de Ledesma has some of the details. The UN's top human rights official, Michel Bachelet, is calling for countries to act decisively on climate change as a matter of survival for humanity, adding only urgent priority action can mitigate or avert disasters that will have huge and in some cases lethal impacts on all of us, she says, especially our children and grandchildren. Bachelet wants governments at COP26 to make good on pledges of financial aid to poor countries that are most at risk to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and cope with the impacts of global warming. I'm Charles de Ledesma. We're going to get into the conference in just a couple of minutes in Canada's role there with uh, our good friend uh, Richard Brennan, who joins us uh, with our weekly get-together here. Uh, Badger, of course, is a journalist who covered the Toronto Star for uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, great to have you back on. Hope you had a good week. I did, Bill. And yourself? Oh, lots of stuff to talk about here. Cabinet uh, announcements and, and a bunch of other things. And I want to talk about, you know, the climate thing. And, and by the way, the new environment minister, too, uh, who I don't think is going to be on Jason Kenney's Christmas list. But before we get to all that, uh, the Conservatives now, uh, stop me if you've heard this before. Uh, the Conservatives are calling on the Ethics Commissioner, that's Mario Dion, of course, to investigate whether Prime Minister Trudeau violated the Conflict of Interest Act after his mother, spoken event organized by a group that is receiving federal funding. You've, you've heard the story, of course, Badger. This is a, oh, a yeah. group called Elevate.ca, and uh, they get federal funding, I guess, for the work that they do. Uh, and she went and spoke there. Now, the organization, after these accusations, is not saying whether or not they paid Margaret Trudeau to speak there, uh, but they want the ethics commissioner to get involved in this. And if, if this sounds like deja vu, this is exactly what they did after the WE conference. And Mr. Dion did investigate that and basically said, move on, guys, nothing to see here. Uh, is there any expectation it's going to be any different this time? I don't think so, but it, this whole thing just smacks of of the Prime Minister's inability to look at things and see things at the, as a public will. And it, once again, you know, you know, she her, his mom is her own person. She can do whatever she wants, but it's the optics. And and that's that's what they're you know that's what the conservatives are feeding on. It's the optics. Whether she you know, whether she did something right or you know wrong, really doesn't matter in the eyes of a lot of the members of the public. Are saying, okay, this organization receives federal funding, and she goes and speaks to it. Was she paid? They won't say apparently, but you know, <laughs> give me a break. They're getting federal funding, and they won't tell the public whether she got paid or not. That's stuff that drives me crazy. But the point is, it, it's, not, it's not a big deal, but it just shows, again, his judgment. He would say, hey, Mom, do you, know, do you really need to talk to these folks if you, if you do 
do it for nothing, please, because it's going to give uh, cause me and everybody else just a lot of grief. So consider that. And I think that's the kind of conversation that, you know, he should have. Again, she, she's entitled to do whatever she wants, but they, you know it's going to blow back. All these things that they do, the family compound, if you will, does, comes back to haunt them sooner or later. And I don't know when they're going to finally get to realize that. And by the way, when I say, you know, nothing to see here, those were Mr. Dion's words, not mine. Uh, I had some problems with the Wee situation, too. And not so much that, you know, his mom and, and brother spoke of this thing. It was they sole sourced this contract, and there was really no legitimate reason when there was a government agency that was already there that could have done that. So that, that stunk like bad fish as far as I was concerned. But this is an existing organization. Uh, they've been receiving federal money, I guess, for some time, and they're apparently doing very good work uh, reaching out to, to certain groups and, and trying to help them move along and, and find jobs and, and make a living. I get that. And Margaret Trudeau, frankly, as you know, does have some gravitas when it comes to mental health issues. She's written books about it, speaking, spoken about this at, at a number of different agencies. Uh, and, and so I, I can understand why they'd ask her to speak at something like this. I don't know that it's such a big deal. And uh, I just, what bothers me about this is here go the conservatives again, trying to make this in a mountain out of a molehill here. I don't think the Canadian public give a damn about this, except the people that already hate Justin Trudeau. And this, that's a growing number, apparently. And if you hate him, you're going to hate him more because of this. But most of the other Canadians are saying, really? Really? With the issues we've got in front of us right now, this is what you guys are focusing on? Yeah, I agree. Bill, but the thing is, <laughs> everything we do in life has you know a repercussions and if you look at it say okay it's fine she does she 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 you're right she does have gravitas when it comes to mental health issues no question does she have a right to speak to these to this group absolutely but did she get paid i mean them just not saying they they add a whole new layer of intrigue if you will to the fact that they won't tell the public whether she got paid or not. And, you know, there's an easy way around this. I mean, we've seen this happen. Uh, she could have said, okay, yes, uh, but, you know, I'm going to donate my fee back into the, some of the programs or something like this if, in fact, she got paid. And let's assume that she did. I mean, the fact that they're not asking, if, if they, there, there was no payment, they'd, they'd probably you know, readily make that available to us. Uh, and even, you know, Miss Trudeau herself may have said, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just take a pass on it this time. I agree with you totally about public perception. And, and I don't know if, he, you know, if they're ever going to learn this. And I don't know if the inner circle around the prime minister said, uh, not such a good idea here, Mr. Prime Minister, and he ignored that, or if they're oblivious to this as well. Uh, but that's one element of this. But I'm, I'm just wondering about, you know, whether or not the, the integrity commissioner, I guess, is going to do this. But, uh, you know, it, it's really a variation on the same theme. And I'm just thinking that Mr. O'Toole and the conservatives probably have bigger fish to fry here. Uh, than to be, you know, concentrating on something like well, this. You've touched upon that, Bill, and I think that's part of the issue. The conservatives are desperate, desperate to try and get uh, any attention they can right now. Well, especially to, to divert attention. Right yeah, now it's the vaccination. I, you know, I, I, Harry's MPs vaccinated. This is a classic, you know, let's change the channel here and talk about this instead of our problems. Yeah, let's look at the liberals. Let's look at the Trudeau family. Don't look at me and the fact that I can't, I can't tell you, or I won't tell you how many our members are vaccinated, and uh, and I really don't want to talk about you know the you know, my feet being put to the fire as to whether I'm going to be thrown out or not. Of course, it's changed the channel. 
it's uh but they they've picked one here that has some legs but you know like like you said i, I don't think it has a lot uh, let's talk a little about the cabinet stuff here uh there were some i guess three big uh, portfolios here. Uh, one, of course, defense minister, and Anita Anand has taken that over. And, and quite frankly, I, I think that's a pretty decent choice, uh, given who he had to work with. Melanie Jolie uh, is foreign affairs. We could talk about her her uh, uh, capabilities in this. But the one that jumps out here that seems to be getting all the attention is Stephen Gilbeau, who is now the environment minister. Uh, we know his background, Badger. He's been a, a radical environmentalist uh, with Greenpeace and doing some crazy things at the CN Tower and other places. Been arrested for that in the past. Uh, Jason Kenney is is not a happy camper. Many people in the industry apparently are not happy campers. Uh, is is Gilbo really the second coming of Rasputin here? I mean, is is he the big black bad guy that everybody says you know, he's going to come out here in a big black cloak? The, the you know the essence of death for the oil industry. I'll tell you, it's one thing to belong to Greenpeace and have the, you know, a freewheeling look at the environment and do whatever you want to to get attention. But uh, all of a sudden, Mr. Gibo uh, uh, is going to see that working for, working for Greenpeace and dealing with the bureaucracy and working in government are two different worlds. And he's going to be... His his leash is going to be shortened up a great deal. All, all this, you know, the, the kind of things that he was able to do before to attract attention to the issue of climate change is going to be much harder now because he's he's in government, and we'll see. But I, I think he's he's going to be awfully disappointed at the end of the day at his and his inability to make the kind of change he would like to see. Well, because there's no way he can do that. I, I know that, you know, one of the agencies that he, he actually co-founded, uh, Equiterra, is in, and they were very radical about this. They just didn't want to reduce uh, emissions. They wanted to shut down the, uh, you know, the, the, the movement down in Alberta altogether and in Saskatchewan, shut the oil taps off altogether. And I know his, his co-founder, Laura Waterdale, actually tweeted and said, I have confidence in you. Please don't disappoint me. Uh, this minister or any minister, as you know from your experience, cannot unilaterally do any of that stuff. No. And, and it's just not going to happen. No, he's going, he, he will end up being a, a very frustrated guy. And mark my word on that. And I'll tell well, you. Well, he calls himself, he describes himself as a radical pragmatist. I think uh, much to his own chagrin, he may find out that as this goes on, he's going to find himself being more pragmatist than he is radical. Absolutely. And I can't blame the West for being having a uh, nose out of joint a bit. I mean, you might as well stuck his, Patrol might as well stuck his thumb right in Kenny's eye on this. To, to do this is, is provocative, no question about it. You know, do, do we need to do make, you know, do uh, strict things to affect the climate change? Absolutely. But to do it this way, I. You know, I, I know he's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point on the world stage. Here we've got a we've got a person who has a track record of fighting for the environment, but to put him in place and with the issues they have out west, I'm sure I'm sure that they are just beside themselves. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, you know, Mr. Wilkinson had a portfolio before the election, uh, was, was also considered to be an enemy of Alberta, but he was much more moderate than this. Uh, the targets the government is laying out here right now seem to be 
if not acceptable to the to the Albertan uh, folks out there, at least a little more pragmatic. Uh, as a matter of fact, as you saw, uh, as uh, he heads over to this COP26 conference in, in Glasgow in a few days, that uh, they're saying that actually the Canadian plan is getting a pretty strong uh, and, and positive uh, reaction from a lot of the folks that are meeting at this meeting, uh, about you know meeting standards, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the goals that have been set out in this. Uh, but it's much more moderate uh, than the, what Mr. Giovo has been talking about over the last little while. And uh, once he gets his orders, and that's, I know you from your experience now, but just to remind our listeners, the ministers will all get letters from the prime minister in the next couple of days or weeks, I guess it is, since he's out of the country. And that basically says, here's what you're going to do for me. And, and this is how you're going to do it. Uh, you know, they, there's no freelancing going on here, is there? Oh, no. Uh, and, well, we've seen that in the past, that uh, he brings them to heel pretty quickly when they start freelancing. And, again, he's he's not going to have the kind of freewheeling power that he's had in the past. He's going to have to adhere to the rules. He's going to have to adhere to, he's going to have to deal with a bureaucracy that, you know, uh, moves like molasses. And and that will be tough for him. I, I kind of feel sorry for the guy because it, this is going to be a tough job with, for him, given his, uh, his experience. And you know, I, and the fact that they're saying that this is this is this event that's going on in Scotland is you know is absolutely crucial to the future of the world. Some people will say that's hyperbole. I'm not so sure. With weather events that we've seen in the last few years, I'll tell you, if these folks don't get their head around what they've got to do, we're we're in big trouble. And I know the anti the anti climate change folks will you know they'll be howling right now, but they can howl all they like. We're we're at a point now where we have to make some very tough decisions, and I'm hoping that that can happen. And but when they put these um, figures, well, we've got to reduce it by a such and such, a, you know, back to 2005 or whatever it might be. It all sounds so well and good, but Bill, you and I have seen these numbers thrown about before and they meant absolutely nothing and they do because, nothing and let's hope because for the most people the badger it's it's abstract we don't understand what this means well, you know, no. price per ton and all this sort of stuff basically saying look at how much is it going to cost me to fill up my gas tank how much is it going to cost me to heat my home i i care about the planet certainly i do uh, but, you know, I, we're not going to put solar panels up on our roof right away. Some people can do that, God bless them, but not everybody can. Uh, you know, we, we want to develop, and we are developing alternative sources of energy. They're doing that in Alberta, by the way. There are wind farms out there, too, folks. It's, they're just not always digging in the ground. Uh, but we're not there yet. And, and I think that's what people have to come to the realization that, you know, this is going to be a transition, and it's got to be a process. You may want to accelerate the process, but how... Many times have you seen government decide, okay, we're going to do this starting on Monday, and they don't have the backup plan yet. You know, they did that with health care. Okay, we're going to do this, but there's not enough uh, you know, long-term care beds or you know, all this sort of stuff. They're doing the, you can't do this with the environment either because you don't get a second chance at this. Well, the, you know, people, things people understand is from this point on, there'll be no more coal burned in Canada. There's still coal burning plants in, in Canada, none in Ontario. But there are, there are in Alberta and uh, I think down east. And I'm sure it's down east. But the point is, you know, that's the kind of thing that people want to see, you know, because we know that uh, coal burning plants are a huge contribution to climate change. 
if we hear that China tomorrow is going to make efforts by a certain point to stop burning coal, coal, those are the kind of things that you and I understand. But we don't get that. We get, you know, there's so many tons, blah, 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 and it goes right over our head. Put it in, it's so abstract, put it in terms that people can understand. And the trouble is with China, and I don't want to feed into, you know, that you can't do anything uh, without China. I'm sorry, that's not true. But as long as China is burning coal, and, and the way they do it's huge amounts every day, nothing's going to change that much. So, I mean, we have to, we have to get them into the fold. We can't start, we have to stop throwing darts at China all the time because it's getting us nowhere. We've got to get them on side and, and get them to understand that they're, they have a, uh, a piece to play in all this as well. And until, until that happens, you know, we're still we're in a jackpot. Which leads us to uh, the, the lack of Asia-Pacific policy that uh, the Canadians have yet to develop right now. And I know that the Americans and the uh, the Brits and, uh, and others, including Japan, are saying, come on, guys, get in the game here. But that's, I guess, a topic for another day because mm. uh, we're right out of time. Uh, always a pleasure having you on here. Have a great weekend, Badger. We'll talk again in the next few days. Okay, thanks, Bill. Take it easy. You too. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue to get updates and we continue to get, uh, well, new wrinkles to the story of the uh, sexual abuse uh, concerns, of course, uh, with the Chicago Blackhawks, the Stanley Cup champions back in 2010. And uh, the allegations, of course, uh, that have been raised uh, for, well, because of Kyle Beach coming forward, of course, and identifying himself as John Doe, uh, there was a, a, a report that was done independently that we referenced on the program yesterday uh, that talked, to, and it's in great detail, talked about exactly what went on, how this whole thing happened. Uh, and it's 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 frightening, frankly, to read some of the details on this. And we're getting a reaction from uh, a number of different people, including former NHL player Sheldon Kennedy. Sheldon Kennedy, of course, himself a victim of sexual abuse uh, in his uh, pre-NHL days. Uh, And uh, he thinks the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault scandal is an example of how an organization's systemic response needs to change. Now, Sheldon Kennedy goes on to say that hockey needs to get to a point where winning at all costs isn't the number one priority. Says organizations still sometimes use an archaic approach when responding to cases like this. And I think that this is an indication that uh, society in today's world uh, expects that these issues are a priority within an organization. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, these issues fall under leadership. And, and Sheldon Kennedy, Theo Fleury, of course, uh, was speaking on uh, our sister station AM640 last night to, uh, to Alex Pearson, uh, giving his read on that. He's too a victim, of course, of sexual assault in his younger days. Uh, where is this going to end? Well, we already know that uh, Florida coach uh, Joel Quenville, who is the coach of the Blackhawks, those tendered his resignation after his meeting uh, with Gary Bettman yesterday. Uh, let's talk about the implications of this and what could be happening next. Uh, to do this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Matisse. John, of course, is a National Hockey League writer for The Score. Uh, busy, busy day, John. Glad you had some time to pop in with us today. Hey, no problem, Bill. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty crazy story that continues to develop, and the latest development is that uh, the Hawks have tried to reach out to the Hockey Hall of Fame to say, hey, we would appreciate if Brad Aldridge's, Aldridge's name is, X'd out of the Stanley Cup if he's basically erased from from memory in regards to uh, that accomplishment. So 
we'll see where that goes. I mean, I can't see the NH or the NHL and the Hockey Hall of Fame saying no to that request, given what we know um, and the fact that there have been names X'd out in previous uh, instances. So that's something to follow. And it's it's the Hawks trying to obviously um, do whatever they can um, to make this situation better, even though at the end of the day, you, you can't. Yeah, I know there's going to be some people that say, hey, due process, these are just allegations. Uh, the reality, though, is that Aldridge is a convicted sex offender uh, and a registered sex offender in Michigan. So uh, even if this doesn't pan out, and I don't, I think it, there's a lot of legitimacy to what we've already heard so far in this, John, uh, th- this guy's a bad actor, and, and they should have known about this. We just got word, too, that apparently they're continuing this investigation, or I guess reopening it, and uh, they can't find Brian Aldridge's employee file from the Blackhawks from those days. It seems to have gone missing. Uh, which is rather interesting. Uh, and, you know, these, these things were all on computer, even back in 2010. And I'm told, I'm, although I'm not a techie guy, John, even if you delete something, you can still find it. And they said, it's just not there. So I, I don't know what's going on, but I, I guess it really just, you know, underscores the idea that there was a cover-up here. That's all there was to it. Oh, absolutely. Like, you can, um, you can offer all the qualifiers you want in terms of Oh, you know, was was the encounter between Aldrich and Beach consensual or not? There seems to be a disagreement with with that, but it doesn't really matter, right? Beach thought it wasn't consensual. From his view, he strongly believed that you should believe the victim first of all, or the survivor, or whatever they want to be called. Um, and also, if you have allegations coming forward, it doesn't matter if there's a gray area there, or if one side saying this and one side saying that. Like you investigate it, you drop whatever whatever's going on, and you investigate it. This is a 20 year old guy who is under your care as a professional organization. He has nowhere else to go. I guess he could have went to the cops, but if, you know, the authority around him, AKA the coaches and the management and his teammates aren't really hearing him and basically calling him a liar indirectly, then how is he going to feel? So there's that component of it. And then as you mentioned, the cover up is, is just, there's so many layers to it because not only does, Joel Quenville and his staff and the management have a meeting and then do nothing about it afterwards for three weeks. But then when Aldrich is actually with HR and they're, they're kind of figuring this out. Okay. You know, how are we going to dismiss you, et cetera? They let him, they let him quit. They let him have his day with the cup. Uh, He gets his cup ring. He gets engraved on the Stanley cup. He gets to hang out with the team still. Uh, There's just so many layers to this that is wrong. That is disgraceful that is under the umbrella of a cover-up. And it goes even beyond 2010. What happened the last 10 years? You know, you could say all these people who knew, them not saying a word about it, that's a cover-up in, in itself, right? And the fact that Joel Quenville, as an example, just a couple of months ago was saying, I didn't know anything about this until the media brought it to me. Um, the fact that that's been exposed as a lie is it's just so disheartening. I mean, this is a guy who won three Stanley Cups, that hockey coaches in across the world, in Canada, in the States, Europe, look up to. This is a guy who is really good at his job when he's uh, behind the bench. Well, look at how he acted. Look at the um, the actions that he took, or lack of, of action, I guess, in this case, um, when there was a, a very serious allegation, and he basically swept it under the rug and said, winning a championship is more important than this individual, his allegations, and his mental health, his physical health, and it's just it's it just makes you shake your head. And uh, I, I commend Kyle Beach, you know, a million times over for coming out. Especially, you know, it's one thing to do it as John Doe, and then now he's doing it as Kyle Beach. That's just 
so commendable. And his interview with Rick Westhead on TSN, what was it, two days ago now? I can't remember. Um, That was honestly the most impactful interview I've ever seen in sports journalism. And I'm trying not to be, you know, exaggerating too much on that front. But I can't remember a time when I'm watching it and I'm starting to sort of choke up and and it just keeps getting more, um, I guess, devastating, more heartbreaking as the interview goes along. So there's just so many layers to this. And, and at the end of the day, the system failed this guy, um, you know, at the, at the micro level with the Blackhawks, and it goes all the way up to the NHL, the NHLPA. And if you want to wrap that all around um, the sport of hockey. A lot of the players, of course, as, uh, as you guys have been reporting, are, are starting to comment on this now. Uh, you know, I've noticed all the post-game conferences after these games over the last couple of days. Uh, they're talking very little about the game that just got played, more about this. And I know last night in uh, in uh, Carolina, uh, Bruins were playing, and Taylor Hall was asked about this after the game. Uh, and he actually tweeted about this after I saw him uh, at the press conference. But he says, every culture needs to keep getting better, and hockey is no different. This is a game that's a little bit of what you would call an old boys club, and there need to be changes. Talk to us about the culture in, in the National Hockey League, and, and maybe even in hockey for that matter, John. Because uh, I know some people were asking rather skeptically when this report came out a couple of days ago that, well, what was he doing there in the first place? Why was he hanging out with this guy? Uh, he was encouraged to by the coaching staff. I mean, they said, look, you're one of the black aces, which means you're you're on the roster, but you're not going to play games unless there's an injury or something. He wants to get to the next level. And Quenville and apparently the other coaches said, you go and talk to Aldridge because he's the guy. He watches all the film. He'll give you tips, and he'll tell us when you're ready to play. He had no choice. If he wanted to be a professional hockey player, he had to do this. Yeah, there's a huge power imbalance there, right? Where And, and this isn't you know exclusive to hockey in this sense, where you have the coaches who put you in the lineup, determine your ice time, you know, can send you down to the minors. They, they, they control your future in a lot of ways. And this guy, Kyle Beach, was coming up as a highly touted prospect but had hit a bump in the road, so to speak, like he wasn't exactly – bursting through and, and entering the NHL as, as a 19-year-old or something like we see with a lot of players, he was still making his way. And that requires a lot of help, a lot of one-on-one time with with coaches. Hey, you're doing this wrong. Uh, I like what you did here. And you just kind of go through it and try to work on your game. It's, it's normal professional development. But in, in that scenario, it pits a guy who, you know, can, can is basically your puppet master, for lack of a better um, phrase, um, against you, and you, you kind of just need to fall in, fall in line. And part of the the good and bad of hockey culture, if, if we can um, just talk about it generally, is that there's a really strong emphasis on team. You know, all for one, one for all, uh, a lot less I, a lot more we, even when, you know, players talk to the media um, instinctively, like it's totally just, just wired into their psyche that, you know, we didn't do this or, you know, uh, we got to be better doing this versus you know talking about themselves. It's just mm-hmm. the way the way it goes, and that's a good thing in a lot of ways. You know, you think about people coming up and learning about leadership, learning about teamwork in minor hockey, learning about you know losing as a team, winning as a team, and, and there's a lot of positives there. But when when you see the flip side of that, where it's win at all costs, and it's literally you know this is this is what happened with with Joe Quinville. He was brought. Forth, there was there was an allegation brought forth, very serious, and he more or less said, and I'm you know this isn't a direct quote, and this is all these allegations that were, were in this report, but it seems to be uh, pretty legitimate. He basically said, "We're trying to win a Stanley Cup here. Like, let's deal with this later." 
Um, so he's trying to put the team before the player, and it's not even the player; it's the it's the human being. So there's there's two sides to that, and I could not believe that Joe Quenville coached last night because Bill, if you think about it, the the whole situation in Chicago it came down to putting hockey over life and over you know a very serious thing. Well, guess what they did last night in Florida? They said, you know, this is basically a distraction. We we think Joel should should coach we're six and oh right now on the on the season and if joel isn't behind the bench we might go to six and one and we need to win that 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 game and i could not believe that after everything that had happened um that panthers management didn't pull him aside and say you're not you're not coaching until this this kind of plays out or the nhl didn't step in and say listen guys even if we're just talking optics not a good idea but it, it just it blows my mind so there's a lot wrong with, with what's going on with the sport. Um, whether, you know, you can run down the list, uh, racism, misogyny. Um, well, there's the macho attitude stuff. too, isn't there? I mean, because, and, and Kyle talked about this during his interview with, uh, with Westhead, uh, that uh, he was ridiculed by his players. They all knew. I mean, Nick Boynton, who was on the, the, the team at the time, uh, was one of the first players to come out and said, we all knew about this. And, we, and and not only did they stay silent, some of them, but they they made fun of him in the dressing room on the ice. Uh, I mean, this is that actually, you know, like, oh, you're one of those guys. Are you? I I have no idea what this. But I, I saw George Larock on the CTV news this morning, and he said those those stories are going to come out. He says I've talked to some of the guys that were on that team, and they're going to name names about the guys, including the captain, probably. Uh, you know, a lot of high-profile players that probably could have and should have done something about this. And not only did they do nothing, they made fun of this guy. And uh, they're, they're probably going to get outed by some of these guys that were disgusted by the behavior. Yeah, it all trickles down, right? So if you have a culture that breeds a certain type of person to be a coach, well, that's going to breed a certain type of person that's a player. And, you know, again, this doesn't necessarily exclusive to hockey or, or even a sport. Sure. But you put 20 people who are around the same age, who are quote-unquote alpha males, who are very good at a sport in a locker room. I mean, you're going to have certain banter. You're going to have this and that. And things have cleaned up overall, say, going back to the 70s. I think the conversations in the room would be very different today. But still, um, you know, let's say you have a couple of guys who have these views about, um, I don't know, homophobia or whatever. They're going to start poking at, at the victim. And that's just, I mean, I can't even imagine being in Kyle Beach's shoes where not only is management turning on a blind eye to you, but your teammates who you think would be on your side are, are poking fun at you. Like that's, that's beyond comprehension in a lot of ways. And yeah, it's, it, it, it's really tarnishing that organization, that cup run. And if I could just jump on a soapbox for, for a second here, Sure. Bill, in, in general, and this isn't necessary. I mean, it is about the, the Blackhawk scandal, but it's also about scandals in general. When when someone who is asked about a central figure in a scandal, I would think that you would you would basically condemn them if if you know the the details are what they are, where this person acted wrongly. So you would think that would be a natural response to a question. Well, Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane both. Uh, instead of just keeping the focus on the victim or keeping the focus on how the organization screwed up, they basically said, you know, this wasn't the Stan Bowman, the GM I know. I, I just, I can't, you know, compute this. And I'm obviously, you know, paraphrasing them, but mm-hmm. it just blows my mind that when people are approached about a scandal, they somehow turn it into, 
well, that guy who's uh, under the spotlight right now who did a really bad thing, he's actually a good guy and try to almost just justify the guy's existence and his success while being asked about a horrible thing. It just, it doesn't make sense to me, Bill. And I, maybe I'm talking in circles here, but Jonathan no, I agree. And, and, and Patrick Kane showed a real, I don't know if immaturity is the right word, but I just thought that they came off very wrong. If they were going to say those things, it would have been better if they didn't say anything, because even though Stan Bowman, you know, let's just give them the, be- the benefit of the doubt overall good guy well guess what he wasn't a good guy in 2010 when he when he turned a blind eye to these allegations so don't bring up that he's a good guy in this scenario because it just it just taints everything and it it degrades the victim in a very public way so jumping off the soapbox but i just thought that was notable i mean i got a minute left here but i gotta ask you this uh, you know, I know Shovel Day Off is going to be with Bettman today. I, we were initially told it was going to be next week. I guess it's today now. Is this going to change the culture? I mean, is is this going to be a pivotal moment for the NHL? I mean, it's hard to say because uh, Graham James, obviously, that that whole incident with Sheldon Kennedy, that was decades ago, and and we've mm-hmm. got another one here, right? Like, obviously, there's always going to be quote unquote bad apples and and people that I guess squeak through the system, even if the system is tight and ethical and has its uh its its stuff together in 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 the right way um but i i mean i think that this is a a big enough scandal that there should be strong action taken there should be people looking inward in other organizations and going that will never happen here and and meaning it not just saying it, not just having a policy that's never followed because that's what happened with the blackhawks they had a sexual harassment policy and this procedure Hey, if, if you get um, approached about an allegation, you do X, Y, and Z. Well, guess what? They did none of that. So yeah. if you're another organization, you assume you're having, or we can assume that they're having conversations about that this will never happen here. So you hope. I mean, it's nice to be optimistic and hope that this will change the culture, that this will uh, bring a positive change in the future. But it, it's really hard to say when um, this isn't exactly the first incident, whether it's um, abuse or racism or misogyny or, or, or other things like that. So we'll see. I'm going to leave it there, but uh, more updates on this, of course, through the course of the day. We'll be watching on the score and listening uh, as uh, you write about this too, John. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on. John Matisse, National Hockey League writer, of course, for the score. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.